Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. This is a story about a man who, from the time he was a kid, he had this dream, something he really wanted to do with his life. And he did it in a huge way. And then, at the very height of it, he just walked away, did something else. I'm a street-walking cheetah with a hat full of napalm. I'm a runaway son of a nuclear A-bound. This is The Leap. I'm Judy Campbell. And this isn't just a story about a guy who took a leap. It's also the story of an album. This album. Raw Power by Iggy and the Stooges, released in 1973. So this was released in 1973, but hardly anyone was listening to this music in 1973. This is what they were listening to. The number one song that year. Okay, just in case that difference wasn't clear enough, here's one more song from Raw Power. I work with a guy named Kevin Jones. He's a music critic, but when it comes to this particular album, he's a little more like a screaming teenager. He says Raw Power totally changed rock and roll. Nothing sounded like this. Nothing. The distortion, the angst, the power. Entire chat rooms are devoted to questions like, what was the first punk rock album? For Kevin, no debate. Even though it was five years before, like, the scene of punk rock, hands down, Raw Power is the first punk rock album. Iggy and the Stooges, they were wild. Iggy Pop was all over the stage, writhing, diving, flailing. And I know at this point it's a little cliche to say that a punk rock band was wild, but Iggy, he invented that cliche. He was the first person to stage dive. He'd moon the crowd. He'd flash them. Sometimes he was covered in peanut butter, sometimes his own blood. Iggy's always the front man of this band, and he writes the lyrics. But that sound, the intensity, so many chords almost at the same time, it's a sound that would change the course of music. A guitar brutal and technical, too. The guy behind all that is James Williamson. He wrote all the music on Raw Power, and he played the guitar. And this is the guy we're going to talk about. He's our leaper, because he leaped right off of that stage, away from music, and into a life that's pretty much the opposite of all of that. We'll get to that. James Williamson is 65 now. He's got a full head of gray hair and an immaculate dining room in a suburban house tucked in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And that's where he told me how he ended up in the thick of this pre-punk world. I learned early on that it was easier to write my own music than it was to copy other people's music. 
I don't know what the early 1960s equivalent is of sitting in your room playing Stairway to Heaven over and over again to learn the guitar. But whatever it is, James didn't do it. He just played. And so it was a style I developed on my own, and I, I wasn't really playing in a lot of bands. And so I was just kind of practicing a lot, I guess. And, and so, it really didn't sound like anything else people were playing at that point, did it? No, no, it didn't. And, and it, it still doesn't. James was trouble in high school. He went through five schools and even spent some time in juvenile hall. They refer to guys like me as incorrigible because I wouldn't do what they'd tell me to do. Maybe a punk rock cliche, except, of course, punk rock didn't exist yet. But it was coming. James saw Iggy Pop and what were then the Psychedelic Stooges' first show. It was in Detroit in 1968. Iggy was playing a vacuum cleaner. James said it was sort of horrible, but also totally exhilarating. I mean, how exciting is the vacuum cleaner? But there was enough drug consumption at that place that it really didn't matter. Iggy had charisma, and he'd do anything to get a rise out of the audience. That night, he was all painted in silver face and had shaved his eyebrows off and had glitter all over his face and stuff. And, of course, he learned about why you have eyebrows then, because all the sweat came down, all the glitter in his eyes and stuff. But anyway, it was pretty amazing. A couple of years later, James joined the band. It was fun and crazy and hard. So many drugs, total poverty. James got hepatitis and retreated to his sister's couch for a long recovery. Meanwhile, Iggy launched himself into a whole new world. He befriended David Bowie, who helped him get signed to Columbia Records. The two of them were headed to London, and Iggy wanted James with him to make an album. They landed in London to luxurious hotels, paid for by the label, and a city taken over by glam. James says it was all big hair and frilly cuffs. I'm just a man I understand the wind and all the things that make the children cry T-Rex was huge in England With my last paw James hadn't seen stardom like that since the Beatles and he and Iggy, they wanted to be rock stars like that So here we are, these Midwest kind of bumpkin guys never been out of the country before you know, didn't know anything um, but we were really sure of ourselves, you know. So sure of themselves, they didn't take the cues of the music industry that was backing them. They were staying raw. They passed on all the musicians available to them in London and shipped in the rest of the Stooges from Detroit. And James, he sat in his London bedroom with an acoustic guitar and wrote all the songs for Raw Power. By then, David Bowie was hitting it big in the U.S. That kept the label guys distracted, and the Stooges were left alone to make this very unconventional album. That's the only way we could have ever made that record, because it's just had no commercial appeal whatsoever. Kevin Jones, the music writer, says it can be hard now to get what a big deal it was, because so much music ended up sounding like this. But when Kevin realized that this kind of music was invented on this album... It was almost like like coming into church, like kind of seeing the light, like... You realize like how awesome this record is, just everything clicks. Kevin brings up that famous Brian Eno quote about the Velvet Underground's first album. 
Hino said basically that not many people bought the album, but everyone who did started a band. Now, that's pretty cool because that's definitely what Raw Power was. But unlike the Velvet Underground first album, like everyone who started a band after hearing Raw Power, like, changed music history. We're talking The Clash, The Sex Pistols, The Damned, The Red Hot Chili Peppers, Nirvana. But at the time, it was new and weird. And not just the music, but also the crazed performance and the way they dressed. At one of their shows in L.A., James met Linda. A mutual friend, Chris, was trying to set them up, and he brought her to his dressing room. I just couldn't believe it because there was James with his hair standing straight on end, many different colors. This was not the time of this. James didn't look like anyone she'd ever seen. He was a punk rock fashion plate, but no one looked like this yet. Hippies and long hair were in fashion. She didn't think he looked cool. She thought he looked ridiculous. And then he was super skinny, and he had on um, like a black leather sort of Martian-looking jacket and pants, I guess, and really big um, boots. And, you know, I just looked at Chris and... (laughs) Is this a joke or what? During that visit to the dressing room, Iggy came tumbling out of the closet. Then he pissed on the floor all the way from the dressing room up the ramp onto the stage. Linda had been around musicians. She'd been around drugs. But this was a whole other thing. You know, it just wasn't a place that I wanted to be. The world wasn't ready for the Stooges. And neither was Linda. She was disgusted. And as for their album, people weren't coming around on that either. Raw Power was a flop. It plummeted like a rock. Being ahead of your time sounds so cool in retrospect, but it was a big pain when it was happening. The tour in the U.S. was a disaster. James called it a death march. The band's drug use was out of control, and Iggy was getting grosser on stage, vomiting, spitting on the audience, taking his pants off. In one show, Iggy got cut with glass and he went with it. Blood gushed, covering him. He kept playing. But there's no point in me trying to describe all this when VH1 has given the world behind the music. Iggy had definitely gotten the crowd's attention, but in doing so, he had unleashed a monster. Where once fans threw pantyhose and pills on stage, Now they began hurling beer bottles and lit cigarettes. It got to be where it was no longer fun to play. It was just a job and and going through the motions and to be afraid. I was seeing all kinds of cameras whizzing by my ears and uh, bottles and breaking all over the place and it was pretty wild. I think everybody sort of was going, you know, why do we need this? That last voice was James. He didn't need it. It wasn't worth it anymore. The band imploded. Iggy ends up on the streets, wrung out by his heroin habit. And he'll keep clawing his way back. He needs it, success or no. But James, not too long after the breakup, he puts down his guitar. He won't pick it up again for 30 years. He's off the radar. He disappears. So, punk rock icon, Juvie Hall alum, Hepatitis recoverer disappeared for 30 years. Really, not that unique of a story. Here's Kevin Jones again. The biggest kind of crazy 
just left everything and, and never looked back kind of story is Sid Barrett, the original songwriter and singer of Pink Floyd. Took too much acid, became a recluse, and even turned down 200,000 pounds to record anything. Skip Spence from Moby Grape. Like a homeless guy you'd catch on the streets of San Jose or Santa Cruz. There's Dylan's mysterious motorcycle accident in the eight reclusive years that followed. Leonard Cohn's five years in a Zen monastery. So Kevin's best guess for what happens to those that, like James Williamson, poof, disappear from music? Either rehab, mental hospital, or just some crappy job. Well, we're at the part of the story where James is about to take his big leap, but only after we take a quick break. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Let's rejoin James Williamson in 1977. It's been about three years since the Stooges broke up, and he's been working in the music industry, in production, recording albums for bands he hated mostly disco. I think that's what led to my happening to be at an electronics store when I saw my first personal computer. Very primitive uh, by today's standards. It was called the MSI 8080, and it had little switches on the front panel where you had to boot it up in binary, you know, to get anywhere with it. But I saw these guys using it, and I was just going, wow, you know, what is this? Remember Kevin's church moment with raw power? Like, ah! James had that with the personal computer. I don't know how to describe it. It was uh, like some alien box that had come from somewhere I never imagined. At no time during our conversation about music, touring, writing Kurt Cobain's favorite all-time album, did James light up the way he did when he talked about seeing his first personal computer? 
The personal computer was like exciting in a way that rock and roll had used to be for me. So I, I was just captivated by it. And I had to be because in order to be a design engineer that could make a computer, meant that I had to go back to school. By the next year, he was in college studying to be an engineer. This is the guy who went to five high schools. He had not done well in school. It was hard, really hard, but he loved it. He kept going, plugging away. And when he graduated in 1982, he moved up to Silicon Valley for an engineering job. Remember Linda from earlier, the one who was disgusted by James? Well, he kept coming around, and finally she really got him. They fell in love, got married, had a kid. James had toned down so much by now that moving to Silicon Valley was more of a culture shock for her than it was for him. He had his work. He was in love with that work. But she loved this exciting life in L.A. She'd been producing videos for MTV, hanging out with stars, and then she was shuffled off to suburban Silicon Valley. She cried a lot. I went to a few parties, so-called parties here. So-called parties. And I swear to God, it was like... um, dancing class, you know, with the boys on one side and the girls on the other. And I was like, never can, I told him I can't do this. But James, he loved what he was doing and he was in the center of it all. For him, Silicon Valley was the most exciting place he could be. And he became a huge success, huge. He worked his way all the way up to a vice president at Sony Electronics, a major tech executive. And this whole time, he didn't tell anyone there what he had done before. It was something that I just didn't discuss. I mean, I, I wasn't playing music anymore. I completely put it down. And I uh, just felt like, well, you know, it's not relevant. He had a couple of guitars in the house, dusty in the corner of the rec room, but he wouldn't play them. Every now and again, I would say something like, you know, you do know how to play the guitar. Maybe you could play, you know, something for one of the kids or something like that. But nope. He'd hardly touch them. He didn't even talk about it at home. He had two kids, a boy and a girl, and his son, also James, they call him Jamie, who was in his early 30s now. He says he was maybe 10 before he knew his dad did anything with music. You know, my dad's an engineer working like a nine to five type of shift, and my mom was mostly like a homemaker at that time. So it was, I guess, typical just in a lot of ways. It's hard to overstate how friendly, polite, and just wholesome Jamie seems and his dad tennis and and fishing that you know that we we shared together and and you know he goes on his his walks and jogs and now he's into golf he's a really uh really nice guy good dad um you know very supportive of us as kids when Jamie was growing up there were no pictures of the stooges in the house which is a beautiful suburban dream Whenever I tried to picture him as a rock star, and if I look at pictures of him back from that time, I was like, that's not really how he is, or like, that's not how I think of him. And so I kind of, you know, just didn't think too much more about it for for a long time. Though there were a few clues. He still had like some things in his wardrobe. You're like, huh, I don't, you know, that doesn't quite fit the, you know, the engineer look or whatever. Like what? you know, like he just had like some boots, like some like, you know, big leather boots or like <laughs> leather jackets. But James kept his past in the closet. He embraced his new success. He raised his kids in a way that wouldn't leave them with an anger that finds its outlet in a screaming guitar riff. And the family never listened to the Stooges. In fact, Jamie says his dad didn't really listen to much music at all. But by now, the rest of the world was listening to his music in one way or another. Raw power, a flop at the time was by now a classic, 
And then there were all of those bands that were so influenced by him. Jamie, his son, was listening to those bands. He remembers what his dad said one time when he was listening to a Nirvana album. You know, that's that's all right. But, you know, I, I was the one who kind of created all of this stuff. <laughs> and I, and and what I, did you think? Did you? And I, I, I didn't really believe him, no. And I, I thought that he, um, you know, I, I thought that he was kind of joking, really. So how could James leave behind such a big part of his life, one he was clearly still proud of? How could he stand being a great guitar player who didn't touch the guitar, a groundbreaking songwriter who didn't write any songs? I'm a kind of a person who is very focused and so it was music to me is like all-consuming and so when i was stopped playing music i had to just put it down otherwise it was too hard for me to do both things that intensity that focus it's the making of an engineer and of a technical guitar player there is a deep and yes nerdy attention to detail that runs through both of those worlds But didn't he miss who he was? I'm convinced it must have been so hard to put what he had away. James shrugs it off, so I ask Linda again and again. Were there agonizing parts of this? Were these difficult decisions? I wish I could tell you that that they were agonizing, but they weren't. No agonizing at all. So now that I'm working on this podcast about people who make dramatic changes, I'm starting to realize something about them. Many people who leap are not agonizers. They don't spend a lot of time considering the other hand. They're not crippled by regrets. And I just don't get that because I'm a regretter. And for me, there is always another hand to worry over, which is probably why I never played guitar in a genre-breaking band or became a tech executive. But James did, and he's about to have another thing coming because more than 30 years after James left music, Iggy called. He wants to know if I want to rejoin the band. Join the band for a world tour, playing those old songs again. And I'm like, no, you know, because at that point, I mean, I'm fat, dumb, and happy. I don't really need the band. But this is 2009. The economy's been tanking. James isn't in danger of losing his job, but Sony started offering early retirement to some of the older people in the company, including James. So he called a family meeting. You could tell he was nervous. He needed to get up to speed. You know, he was rusty. He needed to get up to speed and be able to play these songs again and also be able to play live in front of like large audiences. And so it was like, you know, they had never had large audiences before. James was excited. The whole family was excited. And he got back on the guitar practicing nonstop for six months. Good thing, because the first show was Sao Paulo, Brazil for 40,000 people, you know. It was like crazy. So remarkably bigger than anything you had ever oh, played oh, in the was, day. Oh, yeah, it was not even close. And so it was like uh, I just stepped right into, you know, this like, you know, big time entertainment uh, situation. And he killed it. James's guitar sounded just like the old days, not just the notes, that energy, the excitement, the verge of insanity, thrill. Even though he wasn't a, an angry youth anymore or whatever words they attached to him it sounded just as good and just the same so that's amazing to me because you know you play an instrument and then things come out in it but it sounded just the same which is weird this tennis playing family man a fulfilled tech executive worlds apart from that gaunt experience hungry young protopunk how does it sound the same There's something reassuring about that. Maybe we don't leave ourselves behind when we move on. Maybe it's always there, accessible. 
but I find it unsettling, too, to have something so out of its time and place seem so authentic. Is it? Does it matter? You don't really lose that stuff. You just, it just lays dormant. So what does a guy in his mid-60s with a three-decade break from music look like on stage? Well, pretty tame, really. I watched a video of one of his shows during their five-year world tour. He's wearing a t-shirt and a black leather jacket, but it's one of those leather jackets that looks like a blazer. Nothing like that vampire jumpsuit he used to wear. And he stands there and plays. Iggy is all over the stage, half-naked, but James is laser-focused on his guitar. Always a technician, be it guitar or computer. The Leap is produced by me, Judy Campbell. And me, Amy Standen, for KQED in San Francisco. Our team includes Jason Black, Cecilia Lay, Susie Oki, Joanne Wallace, and Matt Williams. Eli Horowitz edited this story, and we had production assistance from Annie Brown. The audio mix and scoring is by Seth Samuel. Most of the music is from Raw Power by Iggy and the Stooges. But Nathan Campbell wrote and performed the song you are just about to hear. And if you haven't already, subscribe. You'll get new episodes delivered automatically every other week and make our bosses really happy. And while you're at it, leave a comment in iTunes. That helps us and it helps other people find out about the show. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.